Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, welcome to I've Never Said This Before with me, Tommy D'Addario. Today's guest is the brilliant Matthew Lopez. He's a director, a screenwriter, and a Tony Award-winning playwright. And on top of that, Tony, add on maybe six or seven other noteworthy awards for his play, The Inheritance, which I was lucky enough to see on Broadway and I was so incredibly moved by. And being the theater geek that I am, I also saw another show he co-wrote, which was the musical adaptation for Some Like It Hot, also fantastic. But today, we are diving into Red, White, and Royal Blue, one of the most anticipated movies of the year that Matthew co-wrote and directed. Now, this film is an adaptation of the best-selling novel by Casey McQuiston, and I would say it's arguably one of the most popular books ever written. So here's the story. Alex is the son of the American president, and he is in a feud with Prince Henry of Britain. And at one event that they both are attending, that feud becomes pretty public when it comes to a head. So to prevent a wedge from being driven into the U.S. and British relations, Alex and Prince Henry are forced to stage a truce that, well, it, you know, sparks something unexpected and deeper than anyone could have imagined. And I think you can guess... Some love ensues. Matthew brings this queer love story from the pages to the screen in the most beautiful way. And let's just say while watching this, mm, yeah, I shed quite a few tears. I know, I know, I am a sucker for love. What can I say? So let's see if today we can get Matthew to say something that he's never said before. Matthew, how are you, my friend? I'm doing really well, thanks. Good. I'm so happy you're here. I know you've had a crazy few days. You've been on a whirlwind tour for this movie, which we're going to get all into. I have to tell you, uh, uh, what can I say that that will truly convey what it felt like watching this movie in that theater on Monday night at the screening? I mean, my husband and I went crazy over it. We laughed, we cried, we cheered, all the things and more. You did such a brilliant job with this movie. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I know it's your first film. Why did you want to make Red, White, and Royal Blue? Uh, it was about dif- uh, February, February 2020. And my agent uh, sent me the book 
And I had just opened Inheritance on Broadway and I was looking to do something new. I wanted to start looking for a film to make. And then this book came along and I just knew about page 50. I kind of knew that this was the thing I wanted to do. And it was, and then the, the, the rest of the book was essentially me uh, already starting to figure out how I might be able to make a film work out of this book. And I, found out that Greg Berlanti, who was one of the producers of The Inheritance, had acquired the rights. And I lobbied him and Sarah Schechter, his business partner. And uh, eventually, you know, they they came to me and said, yeah, let's do this. And uh, I then that became the last two and a half years of my life. I really, really responded so, so much to the optimism of the book. I really loved the fact that it was this queer romance uh, with, with, uh, with a happy ending and with really idiosyncratic, vibrant characters. I love that there was uh, a Latin, a bisexual Southern boy in the lead. You know, I, there's so much I could relate to in this book. And, um, and, you know, when you contemplate spending two years working on something, you, you had better really like it. And you better really be excited about it. Or you better really be excited about the paycheck, I guess. But um, <laughs> for me, I really needed my first film to be something that I, I was passionate about, that I was going to sacrifice sleep for. And this was it, for sure. So you said you were reading it, and then 50 pages in, you knew you had to make this a movie. What was that defining moment for you? I probably... The fans of the book will tell me how wrong I am at this. So it's probably not at page 50, but... Their first kiss, I think the way, the way Casey described the first kiss was so cinematic. I could see the movie. The movie was just unspooling in my head as I was reading it. And I love that it was this, you know, a kid, a New Year's Eve and snowy White House grounds. I thought there was something just in, inherently cinematic about, about so much of the book. Um, and I really kind of fell for the, the swoony romantic quality of, of Casey's writing. Yeah. And the, the two leads bring this story to life brilliantly. I know you spent five or six months auditioning hundreds of different actors. You found Taylor, you found Nicholas. Why were they the right guys to play these roles? It's funny. After having made the film with them, it's almost becomes really difficult to explain why they're the most, the perfect guys in the roles, because they are mm -hmm. just simply now the roles. Uh, you forget what the casting process was like. And I've had to really go back and, and actually watch some of their auditions recently. And I remember watching Nick audition and working with Nick. He really convinced me that what Henry needed was a caretaker. And what Nick was able to do as the actor playing the role was less inhabit him than care for him. He really, really protected Henry. He really felt very protective of Henry. He, I think, as an actor, saw his job as being someone who had to just sort of create a, a wall around Henry and and keep keep bad things from happening to him. And there was such a, an enormous well of compassion for, for Henry. And I knew that with Nick, I was leaving this character in very good hands and I could I could, I didn't need to worry about Henry and I could work, I could focus on other things. And with Taylor, Taylor 
has this ability to transform himself, both his, his body and his energy into something else. He's a real chameleon and, and he's a shapeshifter. And when I started reading him for this role, I could see Alex just sort of springing into life. And, and so there's, it's funny, there's this very complimentary energy that they have as actors, at least on this film, that Nick was very sort of internal and Taylor was very external. There was some sort of inward energy coming toward Nick and there was some outward energy coming from Taylor. And so that independently of each other, they were already without having met were creating these very complimentary performances just even in the auditions and then i put them in a on a zoom together to do a chemistry read and just sort of like praying and hoping that oh my god you know please 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 just if if it's not true give me enough that i can fake it (laughs) you know and and they didn't need I didn't need to fake anything and neither did they. It was just there from the beginning. It was, it was, I mean, it it's gonna sound stupid to say, but it just sounded like fate. It just was so perfect. It it they were the characters, they became the characters more and more throughout the audition process. And then when we got into this chemistry read, they just clicked instantly. So on the one hand, it was incredibly thorough, this process, both on my part and theirs, I would say. And then it just clicked and became incredibly easy and simple and straightforward. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Their chemistry is incredible in the film. And I know you guys spent about two weeks rehearsing and prepping prior to shooting, which I know isn't always common. And I think that's really cool. You took the time to do that. Was there anything that happened in those rehearsals that maybe influenced a change than, you know, from something you originally thought that it was going to be a certain way? Yeah. Well, I, you know, on, on a film like this with these two leads, I, I knew that there was going to be a point in which I needed to be the boss or sometimes just sort of, sort of have a firm hand on, on, on things. And, and I knew that these two weeks were really invaluable for us, both in terms for, for the two of them to really get to know each other and to really feel comfortable with one another. But then also for, for me to give them an opportunity to, to challenge anything that was in the script, anything that was part of the plan for the shooting uh, of the film, I needed to give them a lot of agency because I needed then to take it away from them once we started filming in so many ways. And, and this was an opportunity for us to sort of like, it was almost like the whole thing was like an open source code. And for, for two weeks, the three of us really worked together to devise what this thing was going to be. We tried different avenues we tried different ways of doing it we we blocked scenes we ran scenes there are a few scenes in the movie that are as filmed and as edited are exactly how we rehearsed them in terms of the blocking in terms of what this thing is about there's this lovely tiny little moment in in the scene where in alex's bedroom which is one of my favorite Mm. scenes in the movie for them and it's in alex's bedroom after they hook up for the first time and and the blocking in the in the movie that you see is, is precisely what we did. It was the very last day of rehearsals and this little um, sort of moment where they talk over each other near the end of it. And it's kind of suddenly gets awkward uh, again. Uh, that just happened one day in rehearsal. And I remember clocking that. And I, 
on set, I, I actually was, I had a video of the rehearsal and they did it. And I showed it to them before we shot the scene. I'm like, do you remember this from nine weeks ago? And so I come from theater. I, you know, rehearsals are invaluable for creating, for, for inventing. There's some, there's, there are times, and especially on a film like this, where your ability to invent on set is very limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I needed to get their imaginations firing. And I needed that to allow my imagination to fire too. So I think it's what made that those two weeks are absolutely what, what made what is special on screen between them possible. And what I love about you is I could feel it through the screen. You have so much pride in the work that they did. You're, you're beaming when you talk about it, which I think. I feel like a proud parent. I really do. Because I mean, the thing is, is that this movie is only as good. This movie would only ever been as good as my ability to get natural, easy performances out of them. The, and one of the things that I'm really, really proud of in this film across the board is how relaxed everybody is mm. and and it starts with taylor and nick there is such an ease about them that really just permeates every scene of the film and and yeah i'm 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 incredibly proud i think you know one of the one of the great pleasures and challenges of this process was was editing the film because it was a wealth of options, you know, and, um, and there's a whole other version of this movie, which I could, uh, uh, assemble out of alternate takes and, and it would be, it would be a different movie, you know? Um, absolutely very proud of those two. Yeah. I think a lot of people want to see those deleted scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the non-deleted scenes out into the world first and then we'll see yeah. what happens. Fair enough. Fair enough. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. 
I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. There was a moment in the film for me that that blew me away um, between between Nick and Taylor. For you, I'm sure this is such a tough question. There were many, but is there one moment that you're just so blown away by? There are so many. Um, the, I, I did give the example of that scene in the bedroom, which is just for me in terms of their chemistry is is so is so beautiful. I have to say that the confrontation scene in Henry's bedroom was, I think, it was something that we were all dreading at filming because we knew what it was going to cost all of us. And I knew that, I mean, <laughs> practically speaking, the filmmaker and uh, as a filmmaker, I, I, I knew I had other things to do that day. So I also couldn't like indulge in, in too long a, a process on set for that scene. Uh, but I also knew I couldn't leave until I got what I needed. And we did it maybe two thirds of the way through the shoot. And it took longer than we expected it to. And I actually, there, there's a couple of things that I didn't shoot that day. Cause I just, just cut them right out. And, um, we had to break for lunch and I was, and we hadn't finished the scene and I was really, really worried that we were going to come back from lunch and all, I was just going to have lost them, you yeah. know, and, um, we would never recapture what, what was happening on set before lunch. And, and it was the mo it was the pivotal part of the scene is the end when they're, when the sort of, when Alex makes his ultimatum to Henry and we got back on set and we got, we, we started filming again and instantly in the first take after lunch, Taylor started crying and Nick was facing away from him and he heard Taylor and Nick started crying. And, and the back half of that scene is so beautiful because they're doing such great work. And I really had uh, a difficult time cutting it because there was such beautiful nuanced work from all of them, from both of them. But what to me was so remarkable about it is they had just had lunch. <laughs> and they just, and they came right back into it and they were more dialed in and they were more in touch with each other than before. And it was a truly, it was pretty remarkable. And I, I, I have to say that was the moment I, I knew that w- whatever happened with this movie, these, those two actors would be fine in their careers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that was the scene I was thinking of as well. It was, it was pretty remarkable. I can't wait for people to see that one. Was there a scene or two from the book that you thought, okay, man, I better get this just right. Uh, there was, well, the cake scene, of course, yeah. uh, you know, I think that, for many reasons, it's the opening of the film. Uh, it, it, it really establishes the characters so much, but it's also just the most iconic moment in the book. One of the most iconic moments in the book. And so there were a million reasons why I knew I needed to get it right. 
Mm. And it was also the most technical thing I had filmed up to that point. It was, I think we shot it in our second week and, you know, the, the first few days of filming were pretty gentle on me and everybody. And then we had this two day shoot inside the ballroom with this cake, with these extras, uh, with all of these other scene elements that were happening. And then on day two, we had to drop this cake and <laughs> get them all mucky and it had to be funny and it had to be technically accurate. That was the one that I was really, really uptight about uh, because there was no margin for error and there were lots of opportunities for error. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was the, that was the most technical filmmaking we did on it. And, and the funny thing is, is that when it came to the actual shot of the cake going into their faces, cause that whole cake was, uh, was, 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 star- was not, it was um, foam rubber and latex. And so for the most part, the cake is phony and, and it's just, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a fake cake. And so we could do a lot with it and drop it and it just bounced. And then you could drop it again. But when it came to getting them dirty, we had a couple of uh, duplicate costumes for them. And there was a plan to get them showered and hair and makeup redone as fast as possible. But I just knew that I was going to lose too much time and and I needed to just get it done in, in as few takes as possible. And it was me and my uh, production designer off camera and we were, you know, at the count of three, we threw the cake and the icing into their faces and it was a bullseye. Wow. It was an absolute bullseye. And we watched it and we just decided to keep moving on and we had it. So I lucked out. That was my, the the luckiest break on this entire film was getting the cake in their faces. (laughs) The first take, the first and only take. Um, yeah, that was it. And then the one that I was really excited to do was the, the V&A scene, uh, at the Victorian Albert Museum scene at night in the museum. It just, ah, beautiful. that was the scene. That's my favorite scene in the book. And when he clicked that music on, I was like, oh, <laughs> come on now, come on. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was, that was, that was, that was the one I was most looking forward to. That was, that was a, we were locked into the V&A overnight. We, we, we had it all to ourselves. It was pretty magical. And it was just the two of them. You know, there were no, there were no extras. There was a very, um, you know, the crew had, you know, the crew, we were just all like a family at that point. And so it was a real night at the museum. Uh, and then, you know, picking that music, cause I know in the book it's um, Elton John's year song mm. and which I knew and instinctively wasn't going to work for us uh, in the film. It just wasn't the right sound. Uh, And so we auditioned a lot of different songs and on set, we used that one. We used the perfume genius and we had had, we, we my perfume genius was going to do a new cover of an older song for us that we really were excited about. And then I cut together the assembly of the film and we watched the scene with Perfume Genius's Can't Help Falling in Love. And we knew it was the right song mm-hmm. and it was perfect. And so it, that was another lucky break because the song that we just decided to use on set was the song we ended up using in the film. 
I think that song's going to soar to number one. When this I hope comes so. Out. It's a beautiful recording. It's an absolutely beautiful recording. Absolutely beautiful. And I have to tell you, when I put up a story on Monday night saying that I saw the movie and I screened it and it was great, I had so many people message me, people I, I haven't even spoken to in forever. And, and I was shocked at how many of those people were straight. This story, this book has such a built-in fandom from all areas and walks of life. I don't feel like you're the type of person that lets that pressure sneak in when you're making your art, when you're making your project, when you made the movie. But how do you kind of not let that cloud your mind when you are creating this movie, knowing that there's so many people who are waiting and wanting and loving this? I learned, I, I think I learned in theater that worrying about what other people think is just really a pointless exercise. Uh, you, you really, you only have, especially on a film, you only have one chance to get it right. Mm. You know, um, you're only in that, you're only on that set one day. You got to move on to the next scene. You're always just moving forward. And so you really, on a film set, you are living in the, in the present. There's no past, there's no future. And that is actually incredibly helpful for focus, you know, and, uh, I knew that I think it's just sort of the tightrope thing. If you look down, you're going to fall. Uh, I, I didn't think about ultimately what anybody would think of the film. I just kept following my gut and following my instincts. I knew, I knew this story. I knew, and look, it's my version of red, white, and royal blue, right? It's, it's not anybody else's. It's not Kate. It's not even Casey's and Casey will be the first to admit it. Casey's, Casey's book is Casey's book and my movie is my movie. It's my movie based on Casey's book. Uh, and it is my reaction to Casey's book. And mm. it, it, the things that I love about Casey's book are what I put into the movie. And um, I knew that I would own it regardless. So I might as well do it in exactly the way that my instinct tells me to do and not worry about what other people would think. Man, that must be incredibly freeing. And I read a quote you gave in a different interview and you said, love it or hate it. It's the movie I set out to make. That yeah. doesn't always happen. I love that quote. Yeah, it's true. I, I look, the one thing that is really true about this process is that I was surrounded by incredibly talented people yeah. uh, across the board. This cast is a dream cast. My, I worked with one of the legendary cinematographers in the business. I mean, Stephen Goldblatt was, the cinematographer angels in America. And in addition to, um, the, the cotton club, which is a forgotten gem of, of Francis Coppola's. Uh, but it, I, I never ever felt as if I had to do this on my own. And I never felt that I, uh, did not have my, it was really remarkable that every single idea I had was executed mm. perfectly. Um, and you know, look, the things that we knew weren't going to work physically or, or within budget, we, we, we adjusted because that's just filmmaking. But, uh, it really, the, the movie I dreamed of in my head when I started working on this film is largely up there on the screen. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. 
Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Well, and one thing I love that you chose to do, I imagine pretty strategically, is this movie doesn't shy away from being sexy. You have these intimate scenes and they're beautiful and you actually feel like you're watching a couple having a loving moment. And sometimes I feel like in content that's for the queer community, you kind of get the watered down version of that. And you don't always get to see those moments of true, deep, passionate love. Was that something important for you to show between the the two gentlemen? Deeply, deeply. I think, you know, one of two things usually ends up being true, not always. And those other movies and those other scenes stand out as a result, but either it's a scene that is, you can tell it's a straight filmmaker making the scene, or you know that it's a straight audience for whom the scene is being ultimately considered. Um, And it's sort of like a generally, I think in the past, a lot of it is, especially in studio movies, a lot of it is, you know, don't scare the straights. And there was none of that on this film. And and I don't know if it was because I don't know. I, I don't know why, but I did not get any resistance to my plans for this thing. I also made it very clear at the beginning. I said, you know, if you hire me, this is going to be in the movie. So mm-hmm. if you don't want it to be in the movie, you should find somebody else to make this film. And I was very upfront about it. Cause I didn't want to have any arguments later. And what was really important to me is, is, I really wanted to do two, I really wanted to do, to do two things, which I'd never, I hadn't seen much of in film. I wanted to show two men having sex in a way that is loving, that is connected, that is, that is pleasurable 
and that is is beautiful mm. uh, and I also wanted to film a sex scene whose geography and whose physical execution of makes sense to people who know how to have gay sex. And so I needed it to both be incredibly accurate physically. And I also needed it to be incredibly to the point where we are in the story. I needed it to be focused on the characters. I needed it to be focused on their journey. Uh, and so we applied both seemingly oppositional desires to the scene and it's it ended up being the scene that that's in the film yeah well they're beautiful scenes i'm I'm happy you stuck to your your instinct and your guts on that i i was surprised that the movie and i know you share the same sentiment got a rated r i guess because of the sex scenes but um that surprised me yeah i mean i say it surprised me and then also it didn't surprise me you know it's sort of like it, you know I think in the perfect world that maybe sometimes still exists in my head, it surprised me. And then in the reality that I live in, it didn't, it's like not surprising at all. Uh, it's, I think that it's just, it's two things. It's, um, I just, if it had been a man and a woman, if it hadn't been a gay couple, I really don't think that scene would have garnered the R rating, mm. but let's even pretend that that, that maybe it would have. What is more depressing to me, actually, is the fact that it is sexuality that got us the R rating. And you you can name a dozen movies that are incredibly violent, far more violent movies than my film is sexual, mm -hmm. that are PG-13. So I think even if you set aside latent homophobia or overt homophobia you're still left with the problem that the MPAA favors violence over sexuality. Uh, they prefer American audiences see acts of violence than acts of love. Jeez. And that's really fucked up. Yeah. And I think that it's, it may be overdue for a reassessment of the use of the MPAA. Uh, I don't know what its function is anymore. And I think it might be a little uh, outdated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is all the more reason why a movie like this is important with the choices you made artistically, because it's going to show people that this is content people want to see and they're going to line up to see it and there's no problem with it. So, yeah. you know. All you we aren't do. living in the same country that we did when the MPAA was. was <laughs> right, right. And I, well, feel like the, I feel like the standards are still being applied to the to 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 the to probably. I, I would imagine the 1960s or early 70s is when the MPAA was was probably founded. I, I don't know that off the top of my head, but um, you know, we're not living in that world anymore. And mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't see anything in this film that actually anybody who isn't at least 13 couldn't couldn't watch you know um yeah so but hey that's me what do i know no i agree i think it's a <laughs> film for everybody and and like i said I, i'm glad you made the choices you made um matthew i imagine doing a movie like this is so gratifying on a million different levels and in a million different ways but personally what did you learn about yourself through making your very first movie like this 
Well, I, I learned that I could get by on a lot less sleep than I ever imagined. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I look, I, I think that Hollywood has for the last several years been going through a, a reassessment of what is acceptable behavior for people with power. And there is no person in Hollywood at a certain point in any filmmaking process more powerful on any given day than the director of a film. And my two mentors in this business were Stephen Daldry and Tom Fontana, who's one of the great TV showrunners. And they both operate in the world from a place of kindness. Mm-hmm. And they operate in this world from a place of, 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 of really wanting to uh, help people do their best work. And when you're on, when you're working with Steven or you're working with Tom, you're working hard, but you're always valued. You're always asked how you're doing and you're always having fun. And it was something that I, I think I maybe unconsciously brought with me into the process of doing this. And there were days when I was frustrated. There were days when I got angry. There were days when something didn't work and it was somebody's fault and you could actually find someone to blame for it. And my instincts always in this time of stress are to get angry. Um, but my actions I learned were much more effective if I didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to be awful. And it is so hard sometimes to be kind. And yet I discovered through exercising the lessons that I learned from Stephen and Tom on hopefully a daily basis, that you really, really do get the best work out of people if you create a warm, loving, safe environment for them. You can push them harder to do scarier things. You can um, make something that is seemingly impossible possible. Weirdly, I also think it saves you time. (laughs) So I learned about myself that my mentors were right. And that I also learned about myself that I have more of a capacity to be understanding of people than I ever imagined. And I know that sounds like I'm in some ways boasting or tooting my own horn or whatever, but I think if anybody who knows me knows that I'm, I'm pretty driven and I, I can be tough and I, I, I can be tough on myself, but I hope also that people know that I, that I, (laughs) I hope I have a reputation for being loving and kind and caring and that battle within anybody between those two instincts I, I I sort of wage that internally on this movie and, and love, love always wins. Oh man, that's beautiful. I love that. What a great, <laughs> oh, good. I do. What a great realization to have through, through doing your work. That's so cool. And I think, man, we all need to uh, tap into more of the, the kindness thing in this world and society. <laughs> it's very important. Um, yeah. Uh, it would be nice. It would yeah. be really nice. And it applies in all things and in all ways and not just in this business and, and and it applies to our discourse and the way we treat other people on social media, the mm-hmm. way we treat other people um, 
at the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Everywhere. Yeah. Right yeah. on with that. Matthew, the last question for you is based off the title of the show, which is I've never said this before. So I would love to know something that you have never said before that you would like to share. It can be deep. It can be silly. It can be anything you want. I've never said this before, but I used to want to be president of the United States. <laughs> did you really? I really did when I was about um, between the ages of about 15 and, and 17, maybe 18. I, I just fell so passionately in love with politics. And, uh, I was a big, I read the New York Times at that age and I, I watched CNN constantly and I just wanted to be, if not president, then like proximal to the president or maybe a senator or a congressman. I just wanted to be in politics. And, and, and then I discovered that I, I liked kissing guys. And <laughs> I, at that time in my life, in that time in this country's life, I knew, well, it, I could either, I could either kiss guys or run for president. And, and, and you, the boys won. What can I say? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because when I was thinking about that question, it, I was trying to figure out what's, what, how to answer. And, and, and I remember giving an interview about being on the Oval Office set and, and I just, I remember actually sitting behind the desk at, um, you know, before work one day and, and just thinking, I remembered in that moment how, how I had these dreams of like, I wanted to go to law school. I planned it all. I was going to get into politics. And then, you know, <laughs> summer of 95, uh, <laughs> <and> I just. <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you can never say never, though, right? You know, I mean, sure, never say never. <laughs> I, I, I'd rather maybe make donations to queer uh, candidates uh, and let other people uh, do that themselves. <laughs> Fair enough. That's an awesome answer. So were you geeking extra hard at Uma Thurman as president? Oh my God, are you kidding me? It was like, I think Uma and I were both geeking together about it. Like, <laughs> Uma would never say this, but I saw her sit behind that desk and she sort of like... She had an idea or two about what she could do after this movie. I think that you, what I, what I absolutely can say, even on a soundstage in London, you walk into even an approximation of the Oval Office and you really do feel this immense sense of power, this immense sense of history. And I mean, it was like plywood and like fake, like really cheap carpeting. And, and yet still you, can't help but be odd, you know? And, but I do think that Ellen has a much better sense of style than, than, um, Joe Biden. Uh, <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> well, listen, if in a few years from now, 10 years, 20 years, I see your name in the race, I'm going to pull this interview and say, see, see, you do, you do. And then I'm going to come to you for a big donations. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Matthew, this was awesome. I, I, like I said, I love the movie. You did a fantastic job. I think you're such a brilliant artist. Um, as we close out the episode, tell people when, how, where, how to watch this film, all the things. Uh, Red, white, and royal blue on Amazon prime starting August 11th, everywhere in the world. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, my friend. This was so much fun. Yeah, I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you. 
I've Never Said This Before is hosted by me, Tommy D'Addario. This podcast is produced and edited by Mike Coscarelli, and executive producers are Andrew Puglisi and Katrina Norvell at iHeartRadio. I've Never Said This Before is part of the Elvis Duran Podcast Network on iHeart Podcasts. For more, rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you like this episode, tell your friends. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Tommy D'Addario. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.